the technology can see that, you know, your sleep was a little more fragmented, your social interaction declined, your movement has decreased, the regularity of your rhythms is, you know, it's becoming more irregular. And so it can detect these small changes. And these small changes, no, no one of them is bad, but when you get a whole lot of them and they persist, then it's like a small nagging thing that just keeps accumulating. And over time, it can become something that's really pushing down your mental health. As the COVID-19 pandemic enters its third year, we are working to fully understand its impacts from lost lives and livelihoods to years of learning loss to a complete rewiring of how we think. And during this time, we've seen the emergence of a new crisis in mental health with record rates of depression, anxiety, and stress. How will we recover from all of this? How will we build back resilience? I'd advocate strongly that we need to do it together. We are stronger in numbers. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the past two months, we've spoken with mental health leaders for a special podcast series on what's driving this crisis, how to meet the overwhelming need, and what local innovators here in Massachusetts are doing to drive solutions. Today, we're joined by one of those innovators, Ross Picard, director of the Effective Computing Research Group at the MIT Media Lab and founding faculty chair of MIT's Mind Plus Hand Plus Heart Initiative to discuss how artificial intelligence and other technologies, including wearables, can be used as a scalable way to detect and treat mental health. Roz, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. Great to be here with you. Everything that you do at MIT is interesting to me. But before we get to that, talk to us about uh, your life and how you eventually ended up at MIT. Sure. Well, <laughs> the, the short version <laughs> is I was a student in electrical engineering and computer science at Georgia Tech and then at MIT, interested in building computers that were smarter, that could uh, emulate the greatest uh, capability known to humankind, which was the human brain. And so I got interested in learning about the human brain and increasingly wanted to build the AI that was like the human brain until I came to the Media Lab at MIT, where I realized an even greater challenge. And that was not building an AI like us, but building an AI that really helped people live better lives. Right. And when you say not building an AI like us... What does that mean? Why, why is it different? Yeah, so the original dream in artificial intelligence was really to build AIs that were, you know, as good as people and maybe as Marvin Minsky, one of our my mentors and founding parents of the field of artificial intelligence or AI used to say, that we could build an AI so great that we'd be lucky if it kept us around as household pets. You know, in the beginning, it was like, wow, you know, could we build an AI as great as the human mind? Could we build one that could do all that our brains could do? And then I realized, you know, do I really want my grandchildren to look back at their mom, the researcher, as the one who made us all into household pets? <laughs> and I thought, you know, nah, you know, I think I, I could aim a little better, a little higher, something that matters more than that. And I think there is something that matters a lot more than that. And that is not building AI to replace people. It's building AI that truly helps people live better lives. And when did you get interested in the brain? Or have you always been interested in the brain? Does this go way back? 
Yeah, I think it happened when I was working on my master's thesis at MIT and I had designed what I thought was a really cool new computer architecture. I was designing how the computers worked deep inside. I designed the VLSI chips and the architecture of what they could do and how they did it. And my advisor said to me, yeah, but what runs on it? And what runs well on it is what he really meant. What was it optimized to do? So I started trying to understand what the human brain was optimized to do and what parts of the brain worked and were shaped differently for different purposes, not just this usual thinking about it's just neurons and biochemistry. And I started just really trying to learn what was going on in the brain. And that was amazingly full of surprises and some things that spun my career around. I was not at all prepared for one of the findings that I read about. What was it? (laughs) While my group, and now I'm fast forwarding after I got my doctorate at MIT and I was junior faculty, I was trying to understand how the brain perceived information better, how we could build computer vision and audition, how we could see and hear and taste and touch and smell and process all that information with these different parts of the brain and put it all together and make sense of it in one small package, right? The computers we built to do tiny pieces of this took up a lot more space than the human head. And as I was studying that, I learned about a part of the brain that was involved in synesthesia, the union of the senses. And to my shock, it was not the parts of the brain we were studying for vision and audition that were the cortex. You know, when you put electrodes in your hair on the scalp, you're reading the cortex, the part of the brain near the scalp. There were regions very deep in the brain that were involved in bringing together this information. And these were considered sort of the older parts of the brain, the parts that were called limbic system, common to a lot of other animals. And they were the home of three things, emotion, memory, and attention. And as a woman in computer science and engineering trying desperately to be taken seriously, doing a lot of math and trying to be very rigorous, I did not want to be associated with emotion. However, the memory and attention I knew were really important and interesting for perception. So I kept reading and learning about these parts of the brain. And unfortunately, I kept running into, or fortunately, as the case may be later, with hindsight, I kept running into a very powerful role that emotion was playing. And I felt kind of upset about that because I did not, again, want to throw out my career by becoming associated with emotion, which at the time was considered irrational, uh, undesirable noise in the data. It was the last thing anybody wanted to deal with. I think it's so interesting because I was talking to my daughter about this last night. She's 15 years old. While you were at MIT in 1997, I think you published a book. And you opened it by saying, I never expected to write a book addressing emotions. My education has been dominated by science and engineering and based on axioms, laws, equations, rational thinking, and a pride that shuns the touchy-feely. Being a woman in the field, containing mostly men, has provided extra incentive to cast off the stereotype of emotional female in favor of the logical behavior of a scholar. For most of my life, my thinking on emotions has been summarized as emotions are fine for art, entertainment, and certain social interactions, but keep them out of science and computing. So this is the 90s. So I was in college. You wrote that. You're a woman working in the field of science and technology. There were not many women working in the field of science and technology in leadership roles, I would imagine, at the time. That's true. It was very hard to find a female professor and get on her schedule to to actually meet her. 
and yet this was really breakthrough. The book is called Effective Computing, and this was groundbreaking at the time and basically created a whole new field in technology by that name. It's really kind of driven how we think about developing AI. I, you're singing my song there, absolutely. For computers to interact with people in a way that shows respect for who we are as human beings and interact smoothly with us, doesn't just irritate us, drive us crazy, annoy us constantly. It's got to see things like, is it annoying you? <laughs> it's got to read and communicate affective information. It does not mean, however, that the computer has to have you know, a lot of other attributes that sometimes the language makes it sound like the computer has. Computers can have a lot of skills of emotional intelligence without actually feeling anything. Right. So not being affected by the things that they're sensing. Is that, does that seem right? Yeah. Well, it depends what you mean by affected, right? If it changes what it does in response so that it's nicer and, and helps you de-escalate your anger and frustration, then that's a good emotional intelligence skill. If it suddenly became all sad and depressed like it does in the movies, like in some of the robot characters, Marvin the Paranoid Android or others when Hal in 2001, you know, was talking sadly at the end. Ironically, in that movie, the computer was the most emotional character, right? And that was a deliberate Kubrick device. So how far have we come? Because I would imagine, it's, it's, is it harder to code for emotions, for emotional triggers than it is to code things that would seem more logic-based. And I'm probably not even using any of the right words. It's extremely hard. It's extremely hard. At one point, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but at one point I went to the numbers where people had worked out the opening moves in chess, you know, 20, 20, 40, you know, and how quickly that explodes and the number of possible games that that was. And same for Go. Uh, and Go is extraordinarily higher than chess. If you do the same for facial moves, let's not even do all of emotion. Let's just do what can happen with your eyebrows, your mouth, your lip corners, uh, different expressions you can make, and a thousand opening expressions and another thousand opening expressions. And actually, it's more like 10,000. And when you start crossing those combinations and looking at just the nonverbal facial moves in the games people play nonverbally in a conversation... That alone dwarfs all of the games one could be moving through in Go, uh, and huh. certainly that dwarfs chess. So the right. complexity of even this tiny, well-defined piece of it is astronomical. That's so interesting. And then I guess there's a whole other level of when you're trying to hide how you're feeling. Yes. And it's not just what you're sending as the signals on your face or in your voice. It's all of the reasoning we do about the situation. You know, I know this thing about her. So I know she's got this background driving situation that might be causing a particular emotion, right? Somebody may be under a lot of stress or grief, but they're in another situation that's very social and they want to uh, keep that in the background. So, but it's still one of the mix, mixing components of what's coming out. So we'll see somebody who's very excited about something, you know, having a hard time suppressing their joy when they're trying to act serious, right? Or, you know, you talk about the poker face, playing cards. It can take a lot to keep a good poker face when you have a great hand. It does seem, though, that there's great opportunity as we get better and better at coding AI to use that to take care of people their mental self, their emotional self, their physical self. 
how close or far away do you think we are from developing effective solutions for that today? Great question. We are still a long way away. I think we have made some enormous progress in very narrow, well-defined areas. And what you'll hear when we talk about AI, for example, being greater than 0.8 correlated with the top psychiatrist, a collaboration we have with Mass General Hospital, David Michelin, Paula Pajali, other outstanding doctors there, they will do gold standard ratings of, of a patient's mental health. We use their first meeting rating with a patient and passive data from a wearable sensor and from some of the patient's interactions with their phone, not directly interrupting the patient and asking them things, but just looking at things like when they're, what hours is their phone open? How does their physiology change? How does that relate to their sleep and activity? And when we track that data using machine learning in a group of patients who are well-defined and characterized as depressed, we can very highly accurately track the changes in their depression scores as given by the psychiatrist. When we don't look at that psychiatry data, we just try to guess it from our data. So that's great progress. But does that mean that we can fully help people with depression right now? No, it still doesn't go everywhere it needs to go, right? It's, it's just a baby step. It's an important one, but it's still limited to the population we've studied and to the kinds of things we're measuring and to just understanding something changing about the patient, not yet knowing how to change their treatment. Well, that's interesting, though, So, because there's really a, a number of components in taking care of people, but detection is a very important one, right? Are we at least seeing, it sounds like we're seeing advances in that piece of the solving the puzzle. Yeah. puzzle. There, there's an old engineering saying that if something's not observable, it's not controllable. You think of like, if you're driving a car and somebody puts a hood over your head, you can't control the car very well, right? Because you can't right. observe the situation around you. And a lot of today's mental health assessments are not properly observing what's going on. They're asking somebody to come in and fill out a questionnaire about the last two weeks, right? And that questionnaire is going to be highly biased on how they feel at the moment they're filling it out and what they wish to communicate or hide about those last two weeks. And similarly, when you go visit a doctor, a trained psychiatrist can pull out a lot more about you, but they can still be duped intentionally or not intentionally, right, by the patient who is just very limited in what they can share right then. They may be highly biased by being in a really terrible mood about something that just happened in the last 24 hours. So we, um, with the wearables and the smartphone technology, um, with your fully informed consent, okay, not sensing anything that, that you aren't aware of or willing to share, and only doing it in a way that honors and respects you and your privacy and your goals and is there to help you get insights into what's really going on with your life and your schedule that might be influencing how you feel tomorrow and the next day. Uh, with that, we can observe so much more. And that can be enormously valuable for mental health. It can also be a little scary for your privacy, right? So I, I just want to mention that up front because it's super important that we co-develop ways to protect your privacy while we are advancing ways to get better observations of what's actually happening. I'm curious that the, the wearable devices that you've put out into the market and that you use in some of these studies can detect quite a few things. And then you're saying on top of that, you can look at people's calendars and you can look at when they've left the home and how much they've traveled and all of the, there's lots of data that you can yes. collect today with their permission. W what are the most valuable pieces of data, do you think? 
You know, we keep looking for like, oh, is there, are there just one or two most valuable things we could measure so we don't have to, you know, gather so much stuff, right? And so far with the heterogeneous groups we've looked at, which are mostly people in the New England area, which is very limited right now, the data is quite diverse what is most informative for different people. For example, some young people who spend most of the time on their phones, their phones can be highly informative about their mood changes. It can reveal their sleep cycles. It can reveal their physical activity. It can reveal their social interaction. There are other people where they're really pretty much only pulling the phone out every now and then for communication. They don't wear their phone on their body. They'll leave it in their bag or on the table. And for them, in particular for most women who don't wear their phone, it's less informative than a wearable and some other things. So it depends. And different parts of the information can be more or less informative depending on how you're doing in your cycle of communication with friends. If most of your communication is face-to-face versus through texting, you know, we can get uh, different insights there into how you're doing. Yeah, I was curious about that. When you talk about programming computers and programming AI to be beneficial to patients who are suffering from mental health disorders, how do you code for things like energetic things like pheromones or, or you know, how do you detect whether tears are happy or sad? You know, because I think even like in the tears, that it's, it's chemically different when you have happy yes. tears versus sad tears. And so how do you account for those sorts of things? Or, or do you think we'll get there at some point because that will be valuable? Great question. This is open research right now. There are new wearables that can analyze the biochemistry of our sweat. There are, you know, improved computer vision systems that can see much more than what the human eye can see. A lot of people may not realize, but regular video now, we can process it to read your heart rate and respiration, even though people can't see that in the video. But the camera sees subtle changes in color that we can pull out over time and pull out the pulsing of the heart. We can pull out the slight changes in your shoulder height and the movement of your body that relates to your breathing. Uh, So this is a little freaky for people, right? They consent to show their video thinking the algorithm sees just what we see, when in fact the algorithm sees even more. Same for uh, just a phone sitting in your pocket. It can also run an algorithm that can process your heart rate and respiration, even though you think it's just your phone sitting in your pocket and it's not listening to you. Um, But in fact, it could also be listening to you. So these things are smarter than most of us know they are already. And that information could be very valuable in detection and potentially prevention if we were willing to open source it a bit more. Well, <laughs> open source it or or enable people to use it better, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, I feel uncomfortable if companies are using this just to sell me stuff, right? I'm not, uh, I don't want to support that. If, however, someone is enabling me to see my respiration patterns and when maybe I need to, you know, ex- long, slow exhale, um, calm down, that would help me focus, that would help me with a difficult situation. And it's there for you when the technology is really built to make your life better, not just to enable somebody with a lot of power and money to make more and gain more of that, right? Then you might, and you start to feel better using it and your relationships go better and your life gets better, then that's really technology that is in service of your needs. And that's what we're really trying to shape, 
uh, the building of. That's so interesting. So do you think at the end of the day, I don't know, you'd have to, I don't know how long you have to fast forward 25 years, 50 years, 100 years. Will technology get very good at essentially putting humans back inside their bodies because humans will eventually understand the, like, the power that their own brains have, the ways to control that power, the ways to fortify their resiliency. I mean, is this really about getting humans to understand themselves better? I think that would be a great game for a lot of people if we understood ourselves better. In fact, there there's a big word called alexithymia. You, you probably know it, but probably most people listening haven't heard of this word before. Alexithymia is a concept I learned about when we were working initially with people on the autism spectrum, but it turns out it applies not to everybody on the autism spectrum, but to a lot of people also not on the autism spectrum. Any Anybody can be alexithymic. And it can mean several things, um, one of which is that you just don't feel things the way other people do. Like other people seem to be in touch with their feelings. And for you, you just don't usually notice feelings, except for maybe when they're really extreme. And maybe you don't notice the physical part, or maybe there's some physical part, but you don't, like, you're not aware of them until they whack you. Or maybe you you have the physical part and you're aware of them, but you don't know how to refer to them. You don't have the language or the terminology. So there are all these aspects of alexithymia, ranging from the physical component to your awareness of them, to your ability to understand and label them and see them changing. And if you're lacking in any of those areas, you probably have some aspect of alexithymia. And that can be a handicap. That can mean that you lose control. It sneaks up on you and overtakes you quicker than for somebody who's less alexithymic or not alexithymic. Uh, It also can mean that you don't understand feelings in others because we think a lot of the ways that we connect with one another are to share one another's feelings. And if, if a lot of that is contagious, right, you sort of catch their feeling and then you say, what am I feeling? And that's kind of what they're feeling. But if you catch their feeling, but you're not aware of what you're feeling, then you have a harder time understanding them because you have a harder time understanding yourself. Right, right. That can reverberate back and that can make relationships difficult and can make feedback difficult, all of those things. Yep. And it's maybe one of the key reasons a lot of kids act out in school and wind up being treated like a bad kid when they're not a bad kid. They just are a bit alexithymic. We need just a shorter word, and then maybe people could become more <laughs> yeah. aware. <laughs> yeah. Can we talk? We had a great conversation one time about resiliency, about what it means to be resilient or to not be as resilient. It's kind of a continuum where you can you can go from being very resilient to not as resilient, and what it does to us individually is is it impacts the way that we can deal with stress and trauma. If we're in a state of resiliency, we're more fortified against bad things that can happen to us or outside inputs. Can you talk a little bit about that notion, how it's so, and how you think about using technology to help people build resiliency? Yes, thanks for asking. I love I love that you're focused on that. You know, so much of healthcare is sick care. And we think about what to do when people are really in trouble and they hopefully go and get help. You know, if you're really if you've been depressed for a couple of weeks, you know, go talk to an expert, right, and get help. But if we focused instead on health and promoting resilience, then I think we could prevent a lot of depression, right? If people could see that there's certain things that fuel your tank, right? That fuel your emotional tank. 
people use lots of different metaphors in this space. They talk about, for example, an emotional bank account. Have you had too many withdrawals lately and not enough deposits, right? You got this bad news and then your favorite team lost and then you and then something really bad happened and somebody got a bad diagnosis and finances are hard and food is bad, you know, and all these things are like withdrawals from your emotional bank account. And if you aren't actively putting in deposits, you know, seeking connection with a healthy relationship, doing things that build your strength, for example, giving to others, taking time to sleep. And I don't just mean sleep long, sleep regular, like a regular bedtime and um, waking up naturally. That can just refill your emotional tank. It refills your cognitive tank. It refills your resources, which give you the ability then to handle these terrible things when they happen. And if you don't keep putting those deposits in, which is really the science of learning how to build resilience, then eventually, even if you're you know, being a good person and you're trying to do everything and you're um, working hard, you can just start to crumble. You just keep declining in your health. But at any point in time, is this true? Humans can build back resiliency? Uh, I think so. I don't know if I'm just being an optimist in saying that. <laughs> I haven't seen any evidence that they can't. Yeah. I think sometimes you need the help of others. When, when you're really hurting, when you're really at rock bottom, you know, you probably can't do it on your own, but you can do it. You just really have to reach out and get good help. And those of us who aren't at rock bottom need to be looking for people who are there or sliding there and reaching out and helping them. Right. That's such a good point. And this is also where detection and technology might be able to help us. Yeah. And in fact, one of the things we've focused on is, you know, we're not real good at seeing from day to day if I'm feeling a little better or a little worse, right? You you just don't notice small changes from day to day. People around you may notice them over a week or two or a month, you know, gosh, she's not doing as well, I think, as she was doing last month. But the technology can see that, you know, your sleep was a little more fragmented, your social interaction declined, your movement has decreased, the regularity of your rhythms is, you know, it's becoming more irregular. And so it can detect these small changes. And these small changes, no, no one of them is bad, but when you get a whole lot of them and they persist, then it's like a small nagging thing that just keeps accumulating. And over time, it can become something that's really pushing down your mental health. It's driving down your resilience. So the technology could kind of warn you, you know, gosh, you know, it's looking like a lot more withdrawals lately <laughs> to oversimplify this than deposits. And it could make some evidence-based recommendations about your bedtime, your social interaction. Maybe you're being too sedentary. Maybe instead of watching TV or sitting there, you should reach out to a friend and go for a walk. And here's some opportunities to help some other people who are struggling. And that might give you an even bigger boost. And thinking on good things, you know, helping you be mindful of things that you're grateful for. We have this problem, right, where care traditionally has been one-to-one you know, one patient, one caregiver, and we understand how the solutions work there, but we don't have enough caregivers in this country for the number of people who are suffering. And so we sort of immediately, right, have to default to tech. How do we use technology to, if we can replicate different aspects of care, how do we do that? The need is obviously massive. And so the more quickly we can get to scalable solutions, the better. What are you seeing at MIT and with colleagues around the world? Yes, we absolutely are looking to technology to scale. And 
there's some very exciting things happening there. There's also some, I think there's also some mistakes being made, but that's inevitable as we get started. One of the things people think of instantly is, okay, let's take what the best doctors do, that's evidence-based therapy, and let's put it in an app and we'll be able to scale, right? Instead of all these expensive appointments where there just aren't enough doctors to help patients, uh, patients can just download an app. And it's a great idea. It sounds simple. And and a lot of people have done this. There are a huge number of these apps and they're based on evidence-based proven treatments. So it sounds like it can't go wrong. Problem is people get these apps and very few of them even download them. Even fewer actually open them. Even fewer use them past day one. And by the time you get out to like day 30, there's about 3% of people using the best ones that are published that are out there, you know, that the literature has studied. And 3% after 30 days is probably not enough to be, uh, you know, maybe very effective in those 3%. What about the other 97%? We started working on this at MIT, looking at what the best designs do in apps to engage people. And for example, what are the most popular games? And here, let me be careful. We're not looking for games that hook you into playing for four hours a day or even an hour a day. We're looking for those little games that that you just want to pick up and play for five or 10 minutes, right? How do you dip in and get today's helpful resilience tip or today's helpful uh, reminder or encouragement or inspiration for the thing that you need to learn or need to do, those things you know you want to do and you're still not doing them. And if you did them, they would help you feel better. In fact, there's a whole therapy based on this for people who are depressed. It's called behavioral activation. And the idea is when you're depressed, you don't feel like doing the things that you should do. So if you could give people some external incentive that gives them the little nudge or push to do that thing, then doing that thing actually helps them feel a little better, which then gives them a little bit more energy to do that thing. And it's a more virtuous cycle instead of this depressing cycle. So how do you get people over that, you know, activation potential to do that thing. So we built a game that embeds this behavioral activation therapy, but we we didn't make it a therapy game. We just made it a fun game. And our first version is called The Guardians. We've put it out for free. If you go to guardians.media.mit.edu, you'll find the right guardians. The app stores have lots of different guardians, but that one will give you a free link to either popular app store uh, where you can play this. And the game's just designed to be played for several minutes a day, have fun, and it lets you choose activities that are evidence-based to help people feel better. And it's won awards, right? It's a very respected app. Yeah, uh, shockingly, our, our itty-bitty team at MIT, with the brilliance in the game development led by Craig Ferguson, won the Fast Company Innovation Prize in wellness, even beating out teams like you know, Samsung and Fitbit and a long list of people you've heard of that have much bigger teams than than us. Yeah. Uh, we, we've been very evidence-based. We also published a paper showing the engagement rates relative to other digital mental health interventions and also relative to things people play just for fun. Because ultimately, we don't want the technology to be a drag on your life. We And why should therapy be unpleasant? You know, why can't it be so fun that you just can't wait to like, you know, pick up and play. But again, we don't want to you to just be on your device a lot. So we we limit, you know, after several minutes of play, like you just can't do much more in the game, right? We we rig it so that 
you know, it hopefully gives you the active ingredients without becoming a big part of your life. And come back tomorrow and play more. But you saw you saw significant changes in the players. We've we've seen significant self-reported improvement in their mood. We're in the middle of running a randomized control trial. Usually we would run the RCT randomized control trial before putting it out there like we did, but it was the start of the pandemic. And MIT, our ethics board, shut down all human subject studies. And so we're like, oh, no, <laughs> <You know? laughs> what are we going to do? So we thought, well, let's just give it to people during this pandemic because we thought it might help people. And we did hear from a lot of people to help them. We are now doing proper randomized control trials also. And in those trials, we look at pre and post measures of gold standard depression scales. So that is in process. So it's going to be so interesting to see that data once it comes back. And then will you talk a little bit about these sensing devices? Why was that a path that you pursued? And why do you think sensors are so important? Yes. When I first started studying emotion as an engineer, I wasn't happy with self-report, what the psychologists considered their gold standard, maybe because I work with so many engineers who who told me they didn't know what they were feeling. Yeah, they have no <laughs> idea, very right? <laughs> yeah, and a lot of them are alexithymic, right? So right. I said, I need objective data. I need reliable, repeatable measures. And I learned that I could get psychophysiology equipment you know, with all these wires and electrodes and boxes and put it on the desk and we could induce emotions on people in the lab. And that was cool. We got interesting data that showed there were changes there. We could build AI machine learning to tell apart those changes. And one day, one of the students who was had theater training was acting out all this anger in the lab so we could get anger data. Uh, she left the lab and she said, you know, Roz, that anger you measured for me in the lab, that was nothing compared with what happened when I talked to my boyfriend outside the lab. <laughs> and I realized we needed to build the lab that went on the person into real yeah. life. We couldn't keep bringing people into the lab. So we set about building the wearables. This was in the, actually in the early 90s, we you know, first started building these wearables. And those became our first affective wearables, our first measurement. We built you know, boxes, instead of duct taping giant boxes to our body, we, we shrunk the electronics. We built, in fact, still have some of the patents on the first wearable sensors for measuring the electrodermal activity, heart rate on the wrist. And these then went out collecting data in the wild. And while we were trying to monitor stress, in particular to help non-speaking people communicate, they, they had typed and told us that they... They couldn't speak and they wanted people around them to know when those people were causing them stress. And for some reason, people didn't see it in them in the usual way. So we built devices that could give them the option to show the people around them. Like, look, when you come in the room and turn on those fluorescent lights and wear that perfume, my stress goes through the roof. When you let me rock or do these rhythmic gestures or be in this space, my stress goes down. And they found this really helpful. So we built these for non-speaking people originally. And while one of the boys in my lab had loaned one to his little brother who was non-speaking, and I'm looking at his data online, I saw one of the biggest stress peaks I'd ever seen in my life. And it was only on one wrist. And I'm like, how on earth could somebody be stressed on their right wrist and not their left wrist? Like something's wrong with my sensors. I, I was convinced my sensors were broken. And fast forward, and there's a TED talk about this. I learned that the little boy had a grand mal seizure and that what the wrist sensor was showing was this huge physiological change related to neurological activity in an isolated part of the brain at the time. And with that, we started working with neurologists and learning that actually these signals we're getting were not just general sweat 
or general arousal or general excitement, but actually they originate in parts of the brain that are extremely interesting, not only for seizures, but for stress and anxiety and depression. Russ, I seriously could talk to you all day. We haven't even begun to tap into all of the things I want to ask you. But for this podcast, I'm wondering if you could give me one or two tangible things that you think our listeners should do either to look for signs of stress and or ways that they can address, start to address those signals. For stress, I think if your sleep is not good, fix your sleep. And I mean, you know, there are apps and experts who can help you with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep insomnia. There are free ones online and they will guide you through things to help you try to get not just longer sleep. It's okay if you get up in the middle of the night, that's fine, but trying to go to bed at a regular time. And also I think trying to align your sleep a bit more with the light dark schedule where you are, if you're able to do that. Some shift workers can't, but if you have the privilege of doing that, there's some evidence that that can be beneficial as well. Number one, I'd say fix the sleep. There are two other things that are huge factors. It's funny, all of these start with S. (laughs) So sleep, the other one is social. So much of well-being and resilience advice is about yourself, right? What can I do for me? Improve my sleep, improve my diet, improve my exercise, and me, me, me. But actually, the number one thing for mental health and well-being is not about you. It's about other. It's being other-oriented. It's having the ability to connect with another person. And I'd say to, like, incoming students, you know, I used to joke about this, but now I'm quite serious— make sure the number of your friends exceeds your GPA. Uh, you know, don't, don't just focus on yourself and your grades, right? Make sure you have friends. And I know later in life, people lose their friends. It's hard, but it's so important. You can, you can make new friends at all ages. So many people are lonely and they will appreciate you reaching out and connecting. And when you reach out, when you focus on another and not yourself, it improves your well-being as well. It's good for them and you. So the number one, sleep. Number two, social. And the third one, not very popular for psychologists to talk about, but there's huge evidence, great statistics, that people with some spiritual or regular faith practice do significantly better. And it's not just the social connection. There's something greater, whether dealing with existential issues, purpose, meaning, something even greater, a mind behind it all. That has just huge wellness benefits. So the sleep, the social, spiritual, religious, whatever you want to call it, um, hopefully with good relationships and a good community. Be careful, they're not all good. Those are proven with evidence scientifically to have great health and resilience benefits. I feel like we could do a podcast on each one of those. Those are That's beautiful. That's a beautiful summary of ways to take care of ourselves. Roz Picard, thank you so much for spending time with me today. This is really wonderful. Thanks so much for all you're doing to help so many people out there. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Roz Picard. I hope that you enjoyed this special series of Catalyst for Change. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. To catch up on the full series, go to shawfoundation.org. Have a great day.